hope you're doing fine. Um, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Gerson. I am from Spain. Forgive me for my accent. If I say a word that you think doesn't fit, maybe it's because of the accent. It's happened a few times in the past. Um, but I'm going to try to get proper my accent to control it. If you see, um, quite intense. It's partially because of, I'm Spanish, partially because the text is quite cool. And yes, I live in Oxford. I've been here for six, seven months now, and I'm studying at the OCA, studying apologetics and theology. And basically what we do in apologetics is a bit of everything. Um, just two, three weeks ago, we had a guy who is a screenwriter, an actor, quite a famous guy. And I'm saying this because I want to tell a story that he, he sort of mentioned. Um, he mentioned this book called Ten Second Sermons. Basically, it's a book in which someone has written very, very short, funny sermons. And one of them went sort of like this. I don't remember the, the words, but basically says this. I wonder if some people speak of God in the same way that one person could go to another and say, Hey, do you know Jeff? And the other say, Yes, he is a great guy. But they don't really know if they're speaking about the same Jeff. And no one seems to wonder. That's the sermon. And I thought it would be a very good introduction to Mark H. Um, I'm really sorry if you thought that was the end of my sermon and you were excited. <laughs> um, just hold a bit longer. Mark H. When we speak about Jesus, and we say we follow Jesus, do we know who are we speaking about? And when I saw the list of passages and I saw this one, I jumped straight away to it because, apart from the fact that it's a great passage, it is an absolute, absolutely central passage to the whole Mark's Gospel. Obviously, the cross is the climax of the whole narrative. But I would argue, and hopefully we will see it, that in this chapter, there is a point that everything changes. There is an inflection point, a point in which the whole narrative takes a change. We'll see. Let's dive into the text and see quickly the first couple of stories, and then we'll stop and think again about what this means. The first story we see is the story of the blind man, verses 22 to 26. Now, it's a, it's a funny one, because we see Jesus healing a blind man in two stages. What does that mean? Is it that he failed the first attempt and he was given another try? I don't think that's the case. I think that some, something much bigger than that is happening. And, and it has to do with the position and the structure of the chapter. But, but we will come to this a bit later. At this point, they've come to the Bethsaida. In general, in general, throughout the whole chapter, they don't go too far. So we can assume that not, not much time is happening between the stories. And, and it's said, it is said that Bethsaida was a city where people were used to all kinds of magic, dubious magic and shows and stuff like that. So, so probably when Jesus got there, that's what they were expecting. They were expecting to see just more of that, more of those supposed magic. Um, and they bring uh, a blind man to Jesus. It is cool to notice that his friends bring him. He's brought because of the faith, in a way, because of the faith of their friends. Unlike other occasions, we don't see this, this blind man begging for himself. I mean, this does not mean that he did not have faith, but it does speak to me about the importance that we can have sometimes in pulling our friends a bit so they can recover their sight. Um, verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on it, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? And having in mind what we just heard about the city, it is important to see how he describes Jesus leading the man, taking his hand, guiding him out of the city. 
I mean, Jesus could have easily done a show right there, impressed many, many people. But he has other plans. And, and then we see the healing. Um, again, a special one. Jesus feeds on his hands and lays, lays his hands on the blind man. And Jesus asks the man if he can see. And this one says that he can see, but sort of blurry. He sees men like walking trees. After this, Jesus lays hands again, and then he can see alright, and sends him directly home. And uh, there are a couple of odd bits in this passage, right? Um, especially the fact that Jesus does this in two stages. But again, we'll come back to this in a minute. What about Jesus teaching and imposing his hands? I think that what Andy said a couple of weeks ago when we were thinking about Jesus healing a deaf man might be quite relevant here as well. For a, for a blind person, it would be a lot more meaningful if Jesus actually touched him. Since otherwise, it would be hard for him to feel like he was relating to Jesus. And the speed, which, as Andy said, might have been at the time related with healing, could have been then just part of the message that Jesus was transmitting. Maybe to make clear that he, that Jesus, was healing him. Jesus could have healed in a different way, but he always means his miracles to be both loving, as I do believe that this was the most relational and loving way that Jesus could have used to heal this man, personally and intimately. And also, Jesus' miracles act always as a more practical part of his teaching. The healing shows us that Jesus was not limited to one single way of reaching someone but he had freedom and complete power. And, and I think it might be worth to remember this. When we out there, we speak with such a diverse crowd, many of whom need to be reached in different ways. Let's move on, and we'll be back to here into this passage in a minute. And, and we're doing quite a long passage with loads of stories, so we can't really stop in, in any of them. But again, hopefully, we will see that actually all these are connected, and maybe this way we can understand better the meaning of each one of them, and appreciate them fully the next time we read them. And now we arrive to the point where something huge happens, and where there is a change in the narrative. <coughs> you might want to keep your Bibles open since we're going to move a bit, and there, there are several, several stories to see here. Verses 27 to 30. Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ. In these verses, Jesus asks the disciples, who does people think Jesus is? And in the answer, we we see that basically people had a much smaller vision of Jesus than what he actually was. They thought he was merely a teacher or a prophet. We see this in the names they, they give, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Jesus had been teaching, doing miracles, and already had been followed by a large crowd at this point. And still, people had not really understood who Jesus was. They saw him, but not fully. They saw him sort of blurry. Does this ring a bell? Now, I would argue that actually, this is the message of the whole chapter 8 of Mark. And I want to show you very fast how this is so. And I know that you already saw this last week, but I think this is important. And I'm sorry if you heard any of this, but just really fast. In Mark 8, the first event we see, Jesus feeds the 4,000. And the disciples, even if they had already seen Jesus doing miracles, and according to Mark, they had already seen him feed 5,000. They still doubt how are they going to feed him. They don't really get who Jesus is. After this, the Pharisees asked for a sign. These guys were supposedly the ones who were waiting for the Messiah, the ones that knew scripture. And they have him in front of them, and they don't see it. 
How crazy is that? And still, how many times this could happen today? Both within people, within the church and people outside the church. Next up, Jesus tells the disciples of, to beware of the leaven, the leaven of the Pharisees. And they think he's speaking about actual bread, and they start arguing over this. How ridiculous does that sound? And we read this, we, we read, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hard? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? The disciples don't get it. They think he's talking about material things. And Jesus tells them all, because they are absolutely missing the point. Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear. We see how one of the main keys to understand the text, to understand the whole chapter 8, is seeing how they do not understand. Especially, and among other things, they do not understand who Jesus is. Now, after the healing of the blind man in two stages, we're back where we were. Why is this important to see that the whole chapter is about not understanding who Jesus is? First, it is important because it helps us understand the message of the story of the, the blind man. And second, because it helps us understand the massive importance of Peter realizing and declaring who Jesus is. In our account of the story, like in Matthew, we clearly read that this is revelation from God. This is massively important, Peter saying, you are the Christ. In fact, this verse, 29, divides the whole gospel. And this is why I started speaking of the importance of chapter 8. It's not just that in regards of the number of chapters, this is at the center, which it is. But, but actually, it's at the center of the message. Every gospel writer has its own techniques to, of communicating the message. And Mark places huge importance to the structure. The way he organizes the gospel is really important. From chapter 1 to chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus presents his identity. He presents the gospel, the good news. Here, we see the king, the authoritative king. We see many, many miracles. Jesus is showing who he is. And the the appropriate response in these first eight chapters is to repent and believe. That's what we read. From verse 29 onwards until the end of chapter 15, Jesus presents his mission. The mission of God. And from this point onwards, Jesus presents himself as the suffering servant. We see many less miracles. Instead, we see Jesus walking to Jerusalem and saying three times that he has to die at the cross. The expected Messiah, the expected king that was going to lead Israel, is going to die on the cross. And the right response from here onwards is to follow Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. We see this in the text. And, and it's funny because in the first half, Jesus, even if he's not that known, shows himself as very authoritative. The authoritative king, the lion. While in the second half, when he already has people following him, when Peter says he's the Christ, we see Jesus as the suffering servant, the lamb. That is what the Gospel of Mark tells us about Jesus. In the first half, we see Jesus as redeemer. Jesus liberates, liberating people, re- delivering people, restoring people. In the second half, from the text we're studying onwards, we see Jesus the ransom, much deeper than a superficial healing or deliverance. And yes, he's come to free us, to restore us. We, that's what we see in the first half. But he's come for more than that. He's come to reconcile us with God the Father and to give us eternal life. 
And even though his lab is going to be the biggest revolution that has ever happened, it won't be as we expected. He beat evil by dying. He beat evil with this. Now the disciples start getting who Jesus is. And I think there is a very important message for us here. Because I think that both in our evangelism, in our life and and conversion, and growing as a Christian, many, many times, Jesus will start being for us much less than what he actually is. And we will maybe know him, we will believe in him, we will sing to him. But in many occasions, that will be all. And we will see him, but sort of blurry, still. This is why I think this text presents a a change. Until this point, Jesus wants to displace one side. He is Lord. From here on, he wants to clarify and display how this works. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. And, and you know, the disciples did not get it straight right away, not even from this moment. In fact, the next chunk of the text that we read, from verses 21 to 23, um, I think... I'm not sure that's right, but from verses, sorry, verses 27, sorry. Uh, where is it? Yeah, sorry, 32, yeah, the 32, sorry. Uh, from In these verses 32, um, we see that Peter actually did not fully get who Jesus is yet. Um, obviously, eventually he does. Eventually Peter gets who Jesus is. And he ends up leading the start of the church, and he ends up dying for the gospel, maybe reflecting those, the next verses we're going to read. But still, at the beginning, he did not get why the Messiah had to die. The thing is, it is hugely important for us to get Jesus right, and not be satisfied with less than he is, because our understanding of Jesus will drive completely our life as disciples will drive completely how we understand following him. Very quickly, do you see the point of the story of the blind man now? Verses 22-26. Jesus speaks and puts his hands in the eyes of the blind man. When in other occasions, he just uses a word. In my opinion, that's because there is a, mes- a, a message here, not just the physical healing, but also a picture of this, un- this, this spiritual vision, this understanding. The message is sometimes getting Jesus right will be a process. Remember that not long ago, the disciples themselves did not see things clearly. Having eyes do you not see, says Jesus to them in this same chapter. And just a few verses before that, before the story of the blind man, Jesus says to them that they lack faith, that they don't understand. And then, with them right there, he does this sign. They can see something, definitely. They follow Jesus. And that is what matters, by the way. They do follow Jesus, and that is what matters. But still, even though they're following Jesus, they see him, but not fully. And even if following him is more matters, not getting him will affect, will affect completely, completely to the way we understand life and service. The relation is quite obvious between the, the story of the blind man being healed in two stages, and what we see previously in the passage, and what we see just next to it. Following Jesus is not always a one instant conversion. Although it happens, it does happen. And, and anyway, there is always, there is always a specific instant in which the Holy Spirit fully changes our, our hearts, even if we don't realize it. But many times that happens in the midst of a process. It certainly was like that for me. Many, many times the process will start 
You might have a first contact with Jesus and you will see him, but sort of blurry, not really understanding who he is and what is going on. But God does not leave his purposes halfway. And finally, his light managed to shine. These men get vision. We get vision. So it is absolutely important to keep looking for him and following him as he is. Nobody wants to follow walking trees, right? At the end of the story, Jesus tells the blind man, Go home. Do not even go into the village. What, what is with that? Why do you think he would do that? Maybe Jesus is precisely trying to avoid once more in the gospel, trying to avoid that people would follow him just as a miracle maker, just for what he can offer, for their instant good, because he wants people to see who he really is, not just following him, because he can heal a blind man. For me, it was absolutely revealing to learn that the disciples were not the superheroes that one could be expected, to see that they were the first ones that struggled. But eventually, disciples get the necessary understanding to, to realize who Jesus is, the Christ, and follow him much more consciously. And especially, I was struck by the fact that, struck by the fact that if they were there, it was precisely because Jesus was making them true disciples. They were not puppets, puppets, they were not weapons in Jesus' hand, they were not an army, not a social club. They were people that had left everything to follow Jesus. And even if it was not, not easy for them to understand everything, they ended up getting what happened. They ended up getting that. They ended up, they ended up getting what does it mean that they could know Jesus. Understanding that Jesus gave them a second chance and gave them so much. When we meet the authority of this king in our lives, when we discover the Redeemer Jesus, our reaction must be the same that we see so often in the Bible. Probably the one that we feel at the moment, to repent and believe. That is the first step. But that's not enough. When we meet Jesus as the Christ, as the suffering servant, when we understand what he did for us, for the world, his ransom, the only valid reaction is to follow him, to follow Jesus. And the truth is that the Bible is very clear. And, and in many aspects it could not be clearer. And I think that many times we, either we forget what we just read, what we just read the day before, or we just don't believe it, or we believe it's not for us, or we just don't want to recognize that it's for us and we're not accepting it. We're seeing blur. Sometimes, some people don't get ultimately to accept completely who Jesus is. And all this speaks to me about how easy, and we see this reflected in a certain way in the story, how easy it can be to act as followers of Jesus without having really stopped to think who he is and what does that mean. How easy is it to follow a Jesus who gives bread and then go home? How easy is it to see something that we don't like and ask for a sign and then be like, oh, that's not for me? How easy is it to live as if our memories were blurry? Or even like if we could not see things but we can't really be bothered to do anything about it? For us, the fact that we are here today means that at some point we've had the amazing opportunity to meet Jesus. And everything said, goes back to the question that Jesus asks his, his followers. Who do, you, who do you say I am? And this is relevant as well for our evangelism. We're not selling the system of ideas. Neither are we selling a pack, a pack of feelings, nor a list of rules, nor a lifestyle. We're sharing about Jesus, a person. The person who saved us and gave us the opportunity to be reconciled with God's Father, with the God who created us. 
the one who transformed us. Um, and that, that's what we want when we relate when with our, with our people, with our non-Christian friends, whatever stage they might be. We want them to see Jesus as Lord and Redeemer, as the King and the Christ, as the Messiah who saved the whole world and did so by dying on the cross. And when we realize who he is, the only option is to surrender everything, to follow him. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the bread of life, Christ, our Creator, our Deliverer, our Redeemer, our God, the Good Shepherd, the High Priest, the Holy One, the image of the Invisible God, the Judge of living and death, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He is wonderful, powerful, and no one can compare with Him. He is the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, the power of God, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, the Word of God, made flesh. He is all these things, and, and more, and many more. And we've often reduced Him to a poor Savior that begs us to accept Him in our lives, in our hearts. Accept Him, like if He needed us to accept Him. He does not need our acceptance. He does not need us. He does not need me. He doesn't need you. He is Lord. We need Him. And how often we have reduced to someone that just needs to be accepted. But still, He loves us, and He deeply shows us at the cross. Get this. A creator God died and rose and won. And there is nothing bigger than that. I really cannot think of anything more transcendent than this. Any ideology, any philosophy, any film or song, any other religion. Nothing more worthy to use our life for. Even to the point of giving that. Listen then to the next verses. From verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in his adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. Here, we have the natural conclusion of everything said this far. The way you understand who Jesus is determines the way you follow Him. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Four quick points and I'll finish with this. The first part, whoever wants to be my disciple, as chapter 8 points to, and we have kind of reflected this thing over the previous text, I am certain that the only reason to not want him to, fo- to follow Jesus completely is not having understood who he is, not having realized who he is and what that means. That's what we see in many people in the gospel. That's what we see in a certain way in the disciples. Not seeing that Jesus is Lord implies that we don't follow him as well. Point number two, deny themselves. Probably, the biggest reason to not think about Jesus' kingdom is because of thinking about something else. Usually about ourselves or our, our benefit. We read, where your heart is, your treasure will be. 
I mean, what good it is to us to try to satisfy ourselves with what, whatever our desires might be, fame, power, money, comfort, love, acceptance, if we can end up losing it? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet for their soul? And this means that your situation should not stop you from mission. It does not matter if you're 14 or if you're 18. It does not matter if you love the church so much and you want to come here every day, or you just don't really want to come much. It does not matter what kind of worries and occupations you have. It does not matter who you are, if it's the first time you're here or you've been here for years. It doesn't matter if you work in ministry or you work as a fisherman. The disciples did both, and they don't. Re- uh, that that did not really bring them closer to Jesus. Clearly, what brought the disciples closer to Jesus, to follow Jesus, was to get who he was. Nothing about themselves. It was to get who he was. To see him risen, victorious. To see him as Lord. Point number three. Take his cross. If you want to follow Jesus, you must follow his example. You must be ready for what's coming. You must be ready to give it all. To lose it all. That's the value of Jesus. The cross. If we understand who Jesus is, we should go willingly, happy to give our lives, even lose them if necessary. I mean, the way you value something will determine what you are, what you are willing to sacrifice for that. We should be eager, eager to go and just make His word known everywhere to the end of the of the earth. <laughs> Point number four: Follow me. Follow Jesus, not me. Follow Jesus. That's it. That's the summary. If Jesus is the Christ, there is no more option than understanding that every day of your life comes from, happens for, and goes and is because of Him. Some practical advice, and I'm about to finish. Practical advice. Read your Bible. The Word of God, together with the Spirit of God working as we read, and think about it, is what will lead us, each one of us, to a true revelation of who Jesus is. And pray. Pray that God will help you to keep realizing more and more clearly who Jesus is and what does that mean for you. Read your Bible and pray. Things easy to remember. In your evangelism, both, princi- both principles are valid. Keep praying for your mates, for your family members to meet Jesus, for their eyes to be opened. And present them, the real Jesus. You can do that with the Bible, or you can do that presenting the Gospel in any other way, but, but make sure that they really hear the real Jesus. The real Jesus that we see in the Bible. The real Jesus that we've been reflecting on, and that we see in Mark. Not the thousands of fake opinions that we find out there. And, and lastly, and, and we're going to be praying for this in a minute, individually. Lastly, don't be satisfied with less than the real Jesus. I think that, as I was saying just right now, out there, there are thousands, thousands of voices that tell us what we should be doing or what we should be seeking. But I, I, I tell you, there's really nothing out there, nothing that really can satisfy you as Jesus can. Nothing that can satisfy you as following Him can do. You were made for this. You were made to portray the image of God around the world. That's what we see when Jesus says, when he says, 
made disciples of all the nations. You were made for this. And nothing, nothing can satisfy you like this. Nothing can complete you like this. So in one way, we have to follow Jesus for who he is. That's the primary thing. But also, he's gonna, he's gonna complete you. He's gonna, it's what you are made for. To follow Jesus. And I know it might seem scary and no, not worth taking the price to take up the cross, a cross. But that's the reality in which we live. And again, as I just said, it's, it's what you were made for. And, and it's the way to love the world. It's the way to love others. Because of the love that we've received and that we see Jesus, because of the love that we've received, we should love others. And, and again, it's just that your conception of who Jesus is will affect completely on how you get it and how you do this. So again, just read the gospel, just hear the gospel, just hear the good news of what Jesus has done. And, and, and that's, that's gonna, just naturally, it's gonna motivate you to follow him as he is. And remember, we're heading for a glorious future. And that waits more. That affects the way you follow Jesus as well. Once more, who do you say Jesus is? We're gonna have uh, a few minutes of silence now so that we can each one of us pray and reflect on this. Um, then I will close in prayer and then we're gonna sing. Um, I wanna leave you with a quote from Jim Elliot. A Christian missionary who was in South America 70 years ago, and he was killed for the gospel. He was, he gave his life for the gospel, and he said this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what, that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Think who Jesus is and reflect what that means and pray about it.